Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. With me this week is Brian M. Watson. They are an archivist and historian specializing in human sexuality. They work as a archivist, and you're also a have a fellowship there or an internship at the Kinsey Institute. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. And work as a master's student where they will be graduating this May and has made the decision to continue on to PhD work. Where will you be going? I'll be going to the University of British Columbia um, for their information library and archival program there. Oh, very nice. So you're continuing on the track then for the library side instead of necessarily the history side. Well, I, I guess it's um it's a good question because I, I have my master's in history from Drew University in New Jersey where I focused on history of the book and history of sexuality. And I was um, really pushed to go into uh, my PhD, and this was probably about, uh, I want to say, 2011. I took a look at the job market, and I uh, decided that probably wasn't the best route to go. Um, mm -hmm. And so I took a couple of years off, um, wrote my book on the history of pornography, um, basically looking for a good excuse to go to Europe for a year. Um, and then I came back and I was in Conan O'Brien and it was, it was a lot of fun, but by the end of all of that, I needed to, uh, actually find a job. So, uh, I went back to library school to work as, work as an archivist mainly. Um, they got here and I was like, I'm not going to be talked into, not going to be talked into doing a PhD and, I can be, and then, I mean, a year, year, two years later is where we are. Uh, so, but my PhD is, um, on archives and sexology so it's basically doing a history phd undisguised undercover sure sure yeah without a doubt let's talk a little bit about your earlier education and how you found your research interests if you don't mind sure um you mean my education at drew yes and, and also since you have you know you stated that you have a a master's in history as well as the um, archival and library science one that you're working on. Right. So yeah, yeah. How, I mean, you touched on it briefly there, but I would like to know more about how you fell into the research interest and the archival work that you're doing. Oh, that's that's a good question. Um, I left undergrad and I, uh, sorry, graduated high school in '07. The whole financial crisis happened, and so I was in undergrad. And I wanted to be a teacher, and originally I thought I was going to be a high school teacher. Um, and as I was in college, I realized I wanted to be a college teacher. So I uh, figured out, I'll, I'll go to grad school and get a history of PhD. And that's a lot more complicated than it, than it actually sounds. Uh, but I ended up at Drew University, and I was kind of lucky um, to end up there because um, 
I, I was originally kind of focusing something on book censorship and how Victorians didn't talk about sex that much in their books and blah, blah, blah. But I didn't really have a real good guide. And um, my advisor there was Jonathan Rose, who is um, the founder of SHARP, which is the Society for the History of Readers, S-H-A-R, Readers, Authors, and Publishers. Um, and it's kind of like the International Book History Conference and Society. And it's, it's just really fantastic. It's where I found my home. Um, and I started with an interest in censorship, like I said. But Jonathan was always, um, as he was such a, a very good academic, he was always pushing people to do something new, do something that hadn't been done before. And um, religious and political censorship. It had been done as long as religions, well, you know, probably since Martin Luther, there have been people studying book censorship. So... I um I started, I found kind of drifted around a little bit and found my way into sex censorship and specifically pornography and obscenity. Uh mostly because it's like a really enjoyable and more amusing thing to write about. And just because I was like, this 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 is something that's it's new. I can like make a name for myself here. Um I focused for my master's thesis, I focused on the period between eighteen hundred and eighteen fifty-six. 57, sorry, which was the year the Obscene Publications Act was um, legislated, announced, signed, put into action, basically. Um, and the reason I did that is because most of the historians in the field would write up until 1800 and then end their story or they would start after the passing of the Obscene Publications Act. And nobody had really focused on that like 50, 25 year gap. So uh, my thesis was just focusing on the Society for the Suppression of Vice and, and arguing that this evangelical group really, their lobbying really got this law passed. And even though at the time it was viewed as kind of this uh, toss away law, we're just going to do this so the evangelicals stop bothering us. They, they, learned, they learned how to weaponize and they had been weaponizing earlier laws and that they, they deliberately got the law passed so they could weaponize it. And they, they were astonishingly successful at it. And this law, I mean, makes its way to the United States. Um, you see Anthony Comstock and the Comstock laws. So really, it, it was kind of like that. And um, I won a, a relatively prestigious award for it. So I um, I was like, well, maybe there's something here. I'll turn it into a book. And I actually did. I turned it into a book. I self-published it a few, I think I want to say 2016, 2017. What's the title of the book? It's called Annals of Pornography, with an I.E., How Porn Became Bad. I'll have to track that down. That sounds like a very fascinating piece of work. It was fun. It was a fun thing to write about, for sure. Well, and this is where I should have a little bit of full disclosure. Um, I'm sure most of my viewers don't know this, but before I went back to university, I actually managed an adult bookstore, so I'm very familiar with the intersection of pornography and obscenity laws and things of that nature, at least at a county level and state level, not so much on the national level. Well, so you must that, be familiar with um, works like by David Church and Peter Alunius and um, some of some of the other historians that work in that area. A little bit. I mean, I haven't read up a whole lot on it. It was more in the interaction that we had with changing laws that went on while I was in the, the business. Um, I haven't really looked at the history of it that much, to my shame. You know, most of my historical knowledge of it is more akin to what you were talking about initially, which is the the political aspect of it. So lavender scare stuff, mm. um, you know, the the persecution of sexual deviance in Nazi Germany, that kind of thing is is more of where I'm coming at it, or the stone, 
uh, wall riots or even the assassination of Harvey Milk. So it's kind of scattershot all over the place. But looking at the the actual laws and the ways in which censorship is codified has kind of escaped my notice. So it's mm-hmm. very interesting to, to to know that this work is out there and, and to hear about it going on. Good, I'm glad. Yeah, I've always been happy to talk a little bit more about that. And I can, uh, I can send you a copy of the book just for free if you'd like after this. Oh, I would be... Um, incredibly grateful for that if you wish to do so. Of course. But yeah, if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that, I would be happy to, to hear what you had to say. Sure. Well, what would you be... Um, when intro- so my, my book covers... Um, it, and I, as you said, I wrote this as a master's student not really knowing anything about academic publishing, so I figured, oh, I'll write it and then I'll get it published, but it turns out it works the other way. You should find a publisher first, for anybody listening. Find a publisher first, um, and then they'll they'll be the ones really to walk you through it. But um, uh, I focus. I I kind of was going to, to do like a semi pop history, semi historical um, overview of how it became bad in the first place. So it started with 1500 with Renaissance Italy. Uh, Pietro Arnantino, the father of literary pornography, as he's referred to, probably my my favorite person in all of history. Just. Uh, Working really came from a very poor background through a series of luck and brilliant writing. Became the first gossip columnist, the first pornographic writer. He published what we would call the first Playboy, I would say. And he's not he's not really well known. Um, he's like the one other term called him the best kept keeper in the Renaissance, and that's absolutely true. Um, he he got to the point where he had popes writing letters begging him not to put their gospel out and. The king oh, really? of, yeah, yeah. The king of uh, France, King Francis the First, bribed him by sending him a ten-foot-long gold chain, solid gold chain. Um, king King Charles V of the, the Habsburg Empire in Spain was at multiple times sent him titles so he wouldn't get off it. So uh, he he got to the point of like where this little boy from this tiny-ass town in rural Italy was able to control or manipulate some of the people far, far superior than him and he, he lived his life out and i mean he, he ended up dying in venice um and it, it, he just just lived a pretty happy life i think that are very very exciting uh and actually michelangelo painted him into um the sistine chapel and if you look at the sistine <laughs> chapel and like the middle right there's a guy holding like the skin of a dead person uh-huh. And the person's face is actually Pietro Arantino, who mocked Michelangelo. And the skin he's holding is actually Michelangelo's skin. It's supposed to be like the dried up skin of Michelangelo. Pietro Arantino, like, I, I'm not really a big fan of this Michelangelo. Of course, it's much later in his life. Like, yeah. He's not that great. And uh, so he, he, <laughs> he's like prevalent. And he goes on to influence um, Chaucer and Shakespeare and, and so many other um, authors. So that's where I start. And I kind of make my way meandering through early France, early Italy, and then um, Marquis de Sade and Fanny Hill. And then, of course, I start building up to the 1800s. And then I kind of end the book with um, how photography and film followed the same path as books. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you had mentioned that once these laws are passed, that they are weaponized. Can you go into the process of the weaponization or exactly who was targeted with these laws? Oh, that's a good question. Um, 
they, I don't know if I could get into the specifics of how they target, of, of like, of, of general groups that they targeted, but they generally tended to target any representations of sexuality, especially queer sexuality. Um, and it depends on which generation of these groups you're talking about. There, there are earlier manifestations for the Society for the Suppression of Vice um, in the 1800s, the Society for the Reformation, sorry, 1700s, 1600s, Society for the Reformation of Manners, um, there's the Proclamation Society, there's a number of different um, groups throughout your English history specifically is where I'm focusing. Um, so I guess uh, which, which decade or century would you like to talk about? Well, I was thinking more uh, in the time period covered by your book specifically, because you said that a lot of the scholarship on it focused up to the passing of the laws, or at least until 1800, and then kind of trailed off a little bit, and you were filling that lacuna. So I was wondering what all you found in there. Oh, I see. Um, so my master's thesis was on that much more narrow period. My book is on 1500 to 1900. Um, so that uh, the um, master's thesis was focusing, I think, most specifically, I focused on how... I was trying to figure out what in the books caused them to go after these various texts. Um, and the ones I believe I recovered, if I'm remembering correctly, are Fanny Hill, um, Arkita Saad, and um, The Lustful Turk. Uh, Lustful Turk I found was really interesting because it's not really even necessarily the heterosexuality or the, the that, it's the positive representation of anal sexuality and uh, I said anal sex um, and the um, how at the very end of the novel story novel I don't depends on what you want to call it the the women end up deceiving white European heterosexual men but like oh well we, we ended up going back to England and marrying into the nobility and just the the, the proposition that a that a woman could be sexually liberated or enjoy sexual pleasure um, and don't get me wrong, it's an incredibly problematic book. It's very racist, and it's um, sure. kind of depends on, I think, as early romance novels did. Like, the only only a woman who was raped can truly be a, a good a good woman and not mm. not be a, a slut. So it totally depends on that sort of narrative. It might even set up that sort of narrative romance novels later on. Um, so I, I was, I was, um, the question never was never really, hadn't really been answered in the literature before, like why or how they had um, managed to uh, get this law through. And digging through a bunch of people's uh, letters and recollections, and I found that they, they started this letter writing campaign. And there are two earlier laws called the Vagrancy Act and the it's a second Vagrancy Act. And the Vagrancy Act said you can't display sexuality in public. And then the big question was like, well, it's in public. So they got that, the Vagrancy Act, second Vagrancy Act came out to say you can't display sexuality at all. And then they started these under, undercover kind of sting campaigns, but the, the punishment was not severe. Like people would like, go to jail for a while or just just pay the fine as part of doing business uh and eventually they seek in the obscene publications act passed by writing law uh, letters just a stream of letters to every single member of a house of lords that was associated with the church or associated with evangelicalism and eventually they have enough to push it through and they they um the law 
God, what was it? The the author's name. Especially the name the name of the author's bill. Um, the bill writer was was wavering, but after they started this letter campaign, he did manage to push the law through, and then. A year later, he declares victory over pornography and says, "We'll never, we'll never see pornography again." And looking back, uh, I think it might have been an early, <laughs> early prediction. Yeah, yeah, that's a mission accomplished moment. Um, <laughs> I'm curious as to whether in their their letter writing, and because the the example you give of the lustful Turk makes me think, you know, not only is that this anti-pornography source of morality based, but there's misogyny, as you mentioned as well. And from the title and some of the things you say about the infiltration, it also seems that there is an anti-immigrant xenophobia. So were these part of the reasons that they were calling for the ban of pornography is that it's not only immoral, but it is a, a way for the uh, the perfidious Turk or the perfidious whomever, the perfidious other to, to come into our society and, and, you know, do shenanigans. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's a long history. I mean, if Society for the Suppression of Vice was... I think it lasted almost 100 years, and they weren't just, and their mission, their direction kind of changes over time, and it's only about halfway through after, I think it's probably during the Napoleonic Wars that their focus begins to shift towards um, focusing on literature, and first they go after people who are, like, publishing, I think it's not David Hume, it's Thomas Paine's uh, Liberty, and, like, Thomas Paine books, so that's where they first start with, is, like, people going political and it's only towards the 40 30s and 40s 1830s and 40s that they begin focusing specifically on pornography and that's kind of where they make their battle and i think eventually end up losing the public um and they're not the only ones and i i am interested in not only how pornography pornography was like the for me pornography is a a lens to look at the history of privacy and the history of marriage in the reality so pornography is just the manifestation of crises over the, the history of marriage, especially in the history of um, gender and sexuality. And privacy is really kind of where I ultimately ended up being interested in and the private self and the public self and, and how marriage is also a flashpoint for those. So my book does type talk quite a bit more about um, the larger trend of sexuality. And I, I am so fascinated by how marriage especially shifted from the 1500s through the 1600s, 1700s to the modern day and how it's shifting even now. Oh, yes, without a doubt. I mean, that's the thing. There's so much here and there's so much that we, I say we, uh, so I'll, I'll rephrase that to, to myself, that we really just don't pay that much attention to, mm. um, you know, and that as somebody who worked even tangentially in the pornography field as a merchant to someone who and a consumer and and all these other things that you really don't i have not really considered the historic path of the battle over the subject i mean i was alive during the 80s when there was the big censorship pushes then um, which was mm. more focused at music but also did take a, a shot at pornography so i can remember that I just haven't really turned my academic focus to it, and I think it's very a fascinating subject, and I'm looking forward to reading your book on it. Mm. What are some of the? Oh yes, what are some of the other projects that you've been working on? Because I mean, that you said that was right after you finished your master's in history, so that was a couple of years ago, and I'm sure you've been busy since then. 
I've been maybe too busy since <laughs> the life of the academic. Uh, I um I applied for grad school in library science and um the school that gave me both the most money and had the Kinsey Institute was Indiana University Bloomington and so I, I came here um spent two years ago now uh to to work on a library science degree and um I um wasn't that interested in like pursuing library science I just kind of looked at this as like a stepping stone to find an archivist job somewhere um but I actually um I took a class here with Rob Montoya or Robert Montoya who is a um he's focusing on knowledge organization and that's the knowledge organization representation and that's the field that focuses on subject headings how we name things how we organize things why why websites are set up the way they are how knowledge of um to give me an example of the thing he focuses on he focuses on biology and taxonomy and how you have this one foot by one foot cubic a cubic foot of ground and i don't know uh, South America or the rainfo- uh, the, rainfo- the Amazon rainforest and how scientists capture all the data from that and then the- how that works its way up the chain to influence how we talk about species and how scientists fight over certain types of species and how scientists know what they know. And, and just knowing like this metadata and um, knowledge organization representation, how how important it really was to both society and academia was really captured my interest. Um, I read a book by Melissa Adler at the same time, and she wrote this book called Cruising the Library, Perversities in the Organization of Knowledge. Um, And her focus was on the Library of Congress and how they have named and controlled queer representations of sexuality. Um, they, the Library of Congress had for a long time something called the Delta Collection, which was their equivalent of the British Library's private case, mm-hmm. in which they hide, hid away all the same books. And it doesn't really survive till today. And both her and I have done some research on the Delta Collection as it existed. Um, and I found some physical evidence that it did actually exist because we never actually had physical evidence. Oh, wow. um, yeah, <laughs> there was... I don't think the Library of Congress would have expected this, but they they opened up. We had the um, American Library Association National Congress uh, conference in D.C. last year, and the Library of Congress was like, oh, we'll have a private night for librarians to come and check out the library, and we'll even open up the card stack. And I don't think they expected the historian of sexuality to immediately jump into the card catalog and find the pornography. But I did, I did actually find it, and I found uh, evidence, evidence of specific cards with the Delta symbol written on them. And that was the first first time we've actually had the Delta symbol evidence to exist. So I, I took a picture, and now we, now we have the evidence. So yeah. that, that, was, that was a fun little exciting discovery. Um, but yeah, so I, I kind of got sucked into knowledge organization. And then at the same time, I got um, a job at the Kinsey Institute, which is really a dream come true. Um, if you're not familiar with the Kinsey Institute, it's the leading um, institution of human sexuality and sexology and started by Alfred Kinsey and contains hundreds of thousands of items and some incredibly valuable ones like Rembrandt and Mitchell Michelangelo and stuff dug up at Pompeii and all the way to like penthouse 
pornography productions put out in the 80s. Like, it is, a, it's an astonishing collection. And so, I, I got sucked into two different ways, and I've, now I've kind of moved on to focusing on how do the terms that we use in, as professionals, um, just doing some research, how is the term that we use looking in a library or looking in a book or looking in an archive, how are those controlled or shaped by archives and libraries themselves and how um, how did they shape people's individual lives? That is also, I mean, broken right to look, a fascinating topic because that also kind of fits into the whole um, post-colonial narrative about, you know, uncolonizing the archives. And this is just another mm -hmm. example of that that is in some ways, I'm sure, still somewhat acceptable in mainstream ways in which the, some of the colonial theory is not anymore. So it's really interesting to see that interface. And I see that you have all kinds of forthcoming topics that mm. are tied into that. Do you have any one in particular that you would like to speak about more than others? In particular group, you said? Well, any of the, the forthcoming topics. So you have like the one on transnaming, which I think is, is incredibly informative mm -hmm. and and important and then they also the utopian potentiality histories of polyamory and non-monogamy so mm. either one of those i mean that you we should speak on or if you wanted to speak briefly on both of them yeah absolutely um so my phd proposal which i know sometimes your proposal doesn't reflect what you actually end up doing in the end but my proposal is um to study sexology which is the science that studies sexuality as a knowledge organization and archival system. So anytime sexology arrives in the world, you have two impulses. You have the impulse to create big archives of human sexuality, of human representation of sexuality. And then you have the proclivity to name it and create new terms for it. And this is, this is from Hirschfeld in the uh, Germany in 1930s. He has this amazing um, Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft, um, which is, uh, he has this massive collection of human sexuality and he creates all these taxonomies and hierarchies of the earnings and the of earnings and all, all the different types of sexuality that we might call like a gay man or a lesbian woman or a transgender person. He has a whole system worked out for this. And when the Nazis come to power, they, they of course burn down the Institute and he basically spends the rest of his life in exile. Kinsey, um, Alfred Kinsey in the States at the time, saw this and was horrified, and then he was kind of having a midlife crisis. So he also shifts to found the Institute for Sex Research, very, very originally named, very uh, <laughs> putting himself as the, I guess, descendant of Hirschfeld in many ways. Um, but he also creates a lot, he gathers a lot of porn, he gets a lot of uh, sexuality representation, and and as nobody else is doing this at the time, and he has a ton of money from the book, his books that he puts out, uh, he manages to create the Kinsey Institute collection. And, and that really is why the Kinsey Institute is so important, because he was the first one to do it, and he just bought like a hoarder. He really did. He bought multiples on my multiples and multiples and incredible stuff that nobody will, will ever have because of, he did. And he, I think I'm sort of a hero for that. But he... Um, and Kinsey himself would, they, he made some decisions about how sexuality should be organized. So um, BDSM, sadism, academicism, as he would have put it, was sucked into a different part of the library. And it was named the S&M collection or the SM collection. 
Um, and because it's removed from all other human sexuality, one of my arguments, one of my case studies, I guess, is that it because the Kinsey two researchers are the leading people at this time and focusing on this, and they're thinking of S and M as a separate experience of sexuality, they do kind of create through their research this idea of a BDSM identity. And uh, Paul Gebhardt publishes a couple of essays on this. Paul Gebhardt, I should say, is the um, uh, second director of the Kinsey Institute, Alfred, Alfred, Alfred Kinsey. He publishes a couple of articles on spanking and um, sadomasochism or the, the, the masochistic impulse and censorship around this. And this was for BDSM historians. This is really the turning point in which the identity of being a kink or a, a masochist or a fetishist or I guess probably a kink positive person really begins. So it's, it's kind of how their research shapes this new identity. And there are other examples. Um, asexuality is a good example in which um, Kinsey didn't include people who were asexual in the Kinsey scale. And Kinsey scales kind of zero to six. Zero meaning exclusively, I think it's exclusively homosexual. And six being exclusively heterosexual. The point being that most people tend to fall on twos or threes or fours. Most people tend to fall in the spectrum of sexuality and not zeros or sixes. But asexuals aren't in that scale at all. And like his decision to remove them from that and remove them from their data kind of delayed the start of asexuality studies, um, which has really only got started probably the past four, three, four years. So these decisions really do have shapes on people's identities and the terms they use. Um, um, transgender is a great example. Trans, what is it? Transgender, transvestite, whether those terms that people use kind of shape their cultures and shape how they understand themselves and understand the way they exist in the world. So I, I am really interested in like to in learning how to unpack that and um, investigate ways that organization of knowledge can really influence people's organizations in themselves. Yeah, definitely so. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the Kinsey scale and its use of effectively a Likert scale. And with zero and six and the inherent... I don't know if this is just because of the measure used or if you think that there was something more to it, I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, the association to one or the other sexuality as a positive because of it being a positive number and the other being zero and therefore having a negative connotation. Um, did you think that there was anything to that or do you just think it was a subconscious thing or just the measure used? It's good that you picked on the Hindian scale specifically. Um, there's a lot of things going on with that and to me, uh, the first thing I always point out to people is that you often hear people go, oh, I'm a Kinsey 2, or I'm a Kinsey 3, or, or whatever. The people say, like, this is what I am, but I don't want to say so Kinsey would have been horrified, but he never meant the scale to be used by regular people. It's supposed to be used by the expert to listen to your life story and be like, okay, so this person is a 3 or a 4 because of what the actions that they told me. But that's not how people use it. Like queer people immediately take any sort of scale and they use it for their own purposes and they use it for their own um, identification knowledge. And this is true today of like, I'm sure you've seen those guys of like 36 sexualities found on Tumblr or, or, or just, yeah. that's not to like den deny them uh, their, their sort of representation or their sort of understanding of their own sexuality. And that's, that's a totally valid way of understanding it. But like, it's uh, queer people are always looking to classify themselves in that both 
both to give themselves the power to have a name and to give um, give their culture or their subculture a sort of meaning and purpose. So that, that's one aspect is like uh, queer people immediately take this and use it to shape their own lives. But other aspects of the Kinsey scale, Kinsey, um, less so in the male volume than in the female volume, he does uh, not really does not focus that much on the sexual experiences of people of color, especially black women and men in the South. And that's partially because he couldn't get it because the get the get the interviews and partially because he was very calculated about what he was arguing about. He he didn't he wanted to focus on middle class men and women, white Americans. And there's a there's a lot to criticize there, but the criticism should come within context of what Kinsey himself was doing. He was trying to be like, no, it isn't the people in jail, isn't the people of color, isn't the Mm -hmm. poor people that are freaks, it's everybody. Everybody falls on these scales, falls in these realms of expertise. And he's also trying to shut down Freudianism and the idea of like, uh, that there is a, such a thing as a vaginal orgasm and that people can be perverted on this natural progression through their own sexuality. So he, he is trying to like break down things that I, I that were harmful at the time and probably still are harmful, honestly. So I yeah. think the Kinsey scale is, is, is specifically, it's, it's just a very fascinating um, way of, doing, of, of understanding Kinsey and sexuality. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly the the forefather, um, at least on the American side. I guess as you you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. uh, Hirschfeld in Germany, and in which I had the, an opportunity to go to the Schulz Museum when I was in Berlin a few years wow. ago. Wow, it was fascinating. Uh, a incredible museum that I recommend anybody who has the chance to go once the pandemic is over. You should, because it is one of the better. I'm jealous, museums. it was closed when I was there, and I'm so oh. jealous. That sounds amazing. No, it was. It was, and and actually, you would have really have enjoyed it that time because the we they had a special exhibit on pornography. Oh no! We <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it would have been right up your alley. Um, you would have had all kinds of insights that you could have shared. Um, what about you know? Uh, you mentioned Freud and the pushback on Freud, but also you sent me a, a paper that you're working on in which. You, you mentioned Foucault, and how are is modern historians of sexuality engaging with Foucault? Because there seemed to be a lot of more tension there than I was aware of. Oh boy, man! <laughs> this is this is the hill I will die on. I okay. Um, I I don't know if I I, I want to say at the outset that like I think Foucault is an important theorist and people should absolutely read him and they, they kind of have to because so much uh, he, Foucault like Freud so much of his work has influenced so many people that you can no longer talk about a, a pre-Foucaultian world you can't talk about pre-Freudian world because even even the way we we would understand people at the time was influenced by that so yeah of course Foucault is going to sound absolutely correct because Everybody that's come after Foucault has studied Foucault. Um, but from the beginning, uh, historians were just like, were baffled at this guy. He was immediately discarded and he, he'd been, 
I wouldn't go so far as to mock, but he, he's been, he was immediately discarded from historians of sexuality and historians of Europe from the beginning. And, and I thought to say, like, a lot of his theoretical um, arguments uh, around panopticons and confessionals, and these are all very important insights. And, but Foucault is not a historian. <laughs> He's not. I mean, the, the history of sexuality, parts one through three, which is his famous history of sexuality books, are, they, I think altogether they have 36 citations. Like, that's not, like, you can't even get a 20 page historical paper passed through a journal with that. It would be laughed out. And, He's he's very good at arguing. He's a very he's a brilliant writer, but he he's very good at like presenting evidence in such a way that it confirms itself. But the evidence, when you go and actually take a look at his evidence, it doesn't show what he wants to show, and that's especially apparent um, in sexuality and his ideas of the repressive hypothesis, which is um, I'm quoting here is this. by enclosing children's sexuality in a web of discourses which sometimes addresses them, sometimes speaks about them, or imposes canonical bits of knowledge on them, or uses them as the basis for construction of science that is beyond their grasp, um, scientists and other priests and everything else created these a pathology of around sexuality, which incorporated into society notions of development and instinctual disturbances and undertook to management. It was implanted in bodies, slipped beneath modes of conduct, made into a principle of classification and intelligibility, established as a reason to etra and a nat- natural order of disorder. I mean, he's, they can, just from that just translation from the French, you can, he's a brilliant um, writer, but he has these ideas around sexuality uh, that are wrong, and he, he bases so much of his sexuality on, quote, the sexuality of children which appears in the history of sexuality more than any other of his concepts. Um, Ars erotica, scientific sexualis. Those are like the, the, the Orient, the East has a art of eroticism, but the West and Europe has a science of sexuality. Um, concepts of biopolitics, of repression. Uh, I'm very iffy on Foucault for a number of reasons, but this is... Uh, this is the biggest one. It's like uh, he—he's not even—he's exploit, exploitive of children to the extreme. Him and um, a couple of other famous French philosophers and theorists, Jean Genet and Guy Hockenheim—I can't pronounce his name—Guy Hockenheim. They they launched into like a multi-decade-long uh, political campaign for to abolish barriers between adults and minors below the age of fifteen, and they speak at upsetting length about virgin territory and how children are the ones who seduce adults and this uh i don't think a lot of historians have reckoned with it because they dismiss Foucault, but then a lot of cultural theorists have wholeheartedly adopted Foucault without really examining the problematical a lot of the problems around his theories and his understanding of sexuality and to me as a historian of sexuality coming into the library field, it's baffling because uh, Foucault is, I don't want to say he's all the rage, but he's, he's still cited quite frequently and understood to be very influential. And they're not so much studying his history of sexuality stuff, but they're studying his writing about archives and power and biopolitics. But um, yeah, that to see him cited so much and, and pointed to so much as like 
wow, whoa, wait, why are, why are we still here? I don't understand. We, the historical field is much far, like decades beyond us. So uh, part of my work is to kind of dethrone, upset, move past Foucault, move past postmodernism. Yeah, yeah, got it out. I do think it's very interesting because I I'm kind of agree with you that it depends on where in academia you're at looking at it as to how much salience he has. But I do think he is still, especially on the critical theory side, very influential. Um, having no archives training, only having a little job in our library's um, mm -hmm. reserve desk, but not the archive itself. You know, I don't see any of that, but. I do see in our critical theory reading him still mentioned quite a bit. Um, and, you know, even some of his genealogies of power has is becoming more in vogue in at least amongst some of the historians that I follow and, and whose works read. And that's not to say that just because he has some problematic things that you have to throw the, the good out with the bad. But I do think we have to be cognizant of these things and take them at their whole because as you said, he doesn't. He is a brilliant theorist, but like several other theorists, when you dig down into it and then try to apply it historically, it doesn't quite hold up to the scrutiny. Right. And, and now he, he's so influential now that you, you it's kind of self-confirming in a way, and that people are just going, a lot of people think that way without necessarily having grappled with some of the mm -hmm. implications well, I mean, and I, I have had similar conversations with my friends in psychology because Freud is discredited psychologically, but his <laughs> theory of, you know, as a critical theory, Freud is still used quite a bit. And so it's just seeing that that, that weird second life that some of these writings have. Mm -hmm. So you had sent me in that paper that I discovered that you were also talking about how you know, pornography in a library is often very close to children's literature. Would you speak a little bit to that? Sure. This is this is um this was something that occurred to me when I was writing my book. Um, I'm just finding the actual. Here we go. Uh, so a lot of libraries, especially academic libraries, are organized using the Library of Congress classification system. And Library of Congress subject headings, and to to explain that um, to people, historians, historical audiences, classification and cataloging are two different things. Uh, when you when you get a book in the library, it gets cataloged, meaning that it gets a subject heading, and these are the subject headings that you search your library catalog by. Like in my example here, are erotic literature. Um, you might search for marriage or corporal punishment of children or anything, um, maps, geology, anything, anything like that. Classification is, so catalog happens first, gets the subject heading, and then the subject heading tells you where it's classified within the library. Classification are those numbers, like you'll see HQ 450, and those, the classification says where on the shelf it goes. What does it go next to? Is it, does it follow um, sexuality? Does it follow marriage? Does it follow um, even French cooking follow English cooking or American cooking. So those are the two things. And in Library of Congress classification, and Library of Congress classification is not just 
America, because of after World War II, uh, so much money was given from American librarians to foreign librarians. It, it, it's influenced probably a significant portion of Western academic libraries. Um, the the terms, if you're looking for erotica, which is HQ450, it is astonishingly, it doesn't sound, because the, the term for ch ch children or child is 767, which doesn't sound like a it sounds like a larger gap than it is. It, it really tends to be like a shelf or two at the most, sometimes a few more shelves, depending on the library and what they have. It, it is very strange that um, this, this range between HQ 450 and 767 contains erotica, pornography, puberty, the family, marriage, abortion, ch corporal punishment of children, and ch children. So that's like the, the whole range of, of a lot of humans' experience. And I couldn't, I noticed this because I'd be pulling off academic books about pornography and then like the child or raising children would be like a few books away. And I'm like, what is up with that? Um, I, so doing that, I was like, I, I want to dig deeper into this. And I kind of was able to use my previous work on the history of pornography to investigate this from a library science perspective and be like, well, well, from the beginning, if you, start digging back into the history of pornography and obscenity, you get to the Council of Trent, which is count the Catholic Council in, gosh, when it is, is it 1400 or like 1500? I think it's 1550 off the top of my head, right about then. Um, the Council of Trent is uh, really what the Catholic Church's response to Martin Luther's challenges. And they come together and they do lots of revisions and they kind of decide like, how are we going to tackle this problem of the Reformation? And, and two of the major things to decide, the first one is called temesting, which is the decisions around marriage. And they say all marriages now have to be public. Before that, a uh, marriage could be simple as like, will you marry me? Yes. And then you guys, you were legally, you were legally, politically, religiously married. And then you, as long as you uh, followed it up by having sex that would would want would make you legally politically and socially married um and men especially upper class men would exploit that gap to statutorily rape women or younger 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 girls um so they would say no that never happened you have no evidence of that happening so the catholic church said this 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 is not going to fly anymore which is a very feminist decision for this their their time honestly um ironically but by by making marriage public and making weddings public it really shifts sexuality into public discourse and creates this division between the private and public that was slowly building up but finally deciding the other major thing that decided that council is to create a band's book list and there had existed some like regional band books list beforehand but like this was an adoption of a significant portion of the legal and political religious world of a books a list of books that should not be read to children specifically so from the beginning children and sexuality and censorship are all erotic and pornography all tied up together and um my argument is like this 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 kind of carries on through it carries on through um legal battles that happened in the 1400s and 1500s and 1600s about whether the, the crisis is around whether or not children have access to these materials. And if they do, then very often 
the the judge will rule in favor of the evangelical or social or religious prosecutor to say no this is absolutely this is absolutely unacceptable so children's education become like this foreground and because they're so tied up all the way through history up into the present day i think i argue that this classification system really is demonstrating that it's a it's a relic of that time but also a manifestation of how closely intertwined these the idea of porn erotica and uh, children have become and are still yeah it's still a a really weird you know even having you lay it out like that, it just feels weird the way that it developed to me. I don't know. That probably says more about me than it does the way that it actually happened. Um, it is interesting, too, how often children are used and the, the protection of children are used as a way to restrict rights. And I'm not saying that that shouldn't be the case mm -hmm. you know, as exposure to sexually explicit material, but just the, the way that that canard plays over and over again in history. Absolutely, and, and how children are kind of um, seen as non-sexualized, but it's a it's a very hard topic to talk about, and it should be hard to talk about, I think, academically too, because there have been some academics who have taken gone into this field, such as um, gosh, it was Lawrence Kincaid, I think is his name. He wrote um, the erotic child or child loving, I think is the name of the book, which woo. Already, already started. And he, his yeah. point was he was trying to make the point that like by by having children being by having sexuality being the, the division between what's a child and what's adult, we are um, fetishizing the child in some way. We're fetishizing innocence in many ways, and mm. it's a it's a fair argument to make. And I, I think his book is insightful in some places. But he was. Uh, if it was just another academic book not focusing on this, but the fact that he focused on this thing specifically, basically nuked his, his career. Like that, that was like yeah. the end of end of his career for the rest. So it's a lot of academics are very careful. There, there has been a recent book written about this called The Queer Child, uh, and it is by nope, it is by Beth. Bailey, I'm oh, sorry, Beth Bailey wrote a great essay on this, but not the essay, thank you. Um, I don't have the actual author in front of me, but it's called The Queer Child, um, and it's about looking at, like, how does um, children's sexuality become tied up in heterosexuality, and how does the, when does the child become queer, uh, and that's, it's, it's a, it's a, I think a very well argue cultural understanding and grappling with some some of those terms, but it is like th this book was published last year, so like it is just a very very cautiously people are stepping into this area. I'm interested to see a lot of what results from it, um, but yeah, it is uh, it's problematic, and, and I agree with you. I don't think I don't think children should. I'm of, I'm of the mind that we shouldn't like always think of protecting the child um, mm -hmm. because they're not going to be necessarily ruined by representation of sexuality. And in the 1400s and 1500s, children would sleep in the same bed as their parents, and they probably had a good understanding of how their siblings were made, and they lived on right. farms and would see animals reproducing. So mm -hmm. 
it's not that children can't grapple with sexuality, it's, but it is, there's a lot to um, grapple with there, and it's a, it's a hard thing to do academically. It has to be done very carefully. Without a doubt. Um, and I found a book with that name by Catherine Bond Stockton. I don't know if that is who is the, is the author of the specific book mm -hmm. that you were talking about. Yes, yes, that was it. Okay. Um, very good. Yeah. Now, there's a lot there to, to chew on, and I, it, it's interesting, and I don't know of any childhood historians or who are dealing with that particular nexus with the history of sex, but it would be that I think is, and understandably so, um, but I do think that that is a, a part of both fields that probably do need to be explored at some point. Mm-hmm. But let's transition away from that because that is mm -hmm. still a fraught topic. Um, tell us about your adventures to Spain. <laughs> I went to Spain um, for the Rethinking Sexology Project. If you're not familiar with them, they got a, a good chunk of change, I think, from the EU and the Wellcome Library, which is kind of kind of the equivalent to the Kinsey in the UK, but they do a lot of like medical library and stuff. It's probably the National Library of Medicine would probably be the best equivalent to it in the United States to do a project, uh, a multi, a decade long project focusing on how sex, this, we're about a hundred years to uh, 2030, 2028 will be about, it might even be 2020, honestly, about a hundred years since the invention of sexology. Uh, so they they were they're they've been investigating this from multiple different angles and it's made up of several leading um, historians of sexuality, especially in the UK. Um, Katie Fisher, Jen Grove, um, Sarah Bull, like a, a lot of the bigger names in the history of sexuality. Melissa Adler um, presented there at a kind of conference. So I was there to present a uh, a poster. Actually, we ended up doing a post session and. It was, it, was, it was a wonderful experience to get to meet all of my favorite academic historians and uh, tweet about it. And I took the rest of the week off to um, drive around Spain, which which uh, this was this was Valentine's Day of this year. So I spent the whole week driving through when I got drove all the way through Spain, Andalusia. I went to Ronda. I went to um, Sevilla. I went to uh, Granada was where the conference was. I went to Madrid. Somewhere along that, I ended up catching the coronavirus. So I ended up back, uh, flying back home, and um, I was fine for actually a couple of weeks, and then coronavirus ended up kicking in and taking me down for a couple of weeks. Um, still managing to come off of it now. Uh, a lot of some friends who had had, who got it as well um, from visiting Europe mentioned that, oh, you'll get better, and then you'll catch a cold immediately after. And I was like, no, I feel great. I'm going to be fine. I just, just got the just got a cold a few days ago. Uh, finally, finally, hopefully now getting back to the point where I can go out in public again. I'm still under quarantine for to Wednesday next year, next week. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, and that just uh, is. I, I had asked you to bring that up because you know, um, as both of us are historians, talking about the realities of COVID nineteen in the and the present state as we sit to record this, which is that yeah. April 3rd. And, you know, as you said, you were traveling around and probably weren't around anybody who was visibly sick, just enjoying uh, time in Spain, which I, I was fortunate enough to go to Spain last summer. And it is beautiful country. And um, I did some of the same stuff and, you know, to, to catch this virus and not really have any symptoms for uh, quite a long incubation period. It, 
is one of the reasons that we are attempting to flatten the curve and, and mm-hmm. our responsible politicians are encouraging us to stay home and hmm. um, you know <laughs> the responsible ones anyway um, <laughs> responsible so, yeah, politicians it's, it's a good distinction there <laughs> yeah um yeah i don't want to get too into that but read between <laughs> the lines folks and you'll see exactly what i mean for that um so I, I do think it is it is important and i'm glad to hear that you're doing better um and also glad to hear that you are following the guidelines and staying self-quarantine yes of course following following the doctors uh, my mom's a nurse so it's been it's it been a little scary watching that because i know she she is going to work every day and she got oh, the call man. a few days ago that she's been exposed and so I mean, she's going to get tested and, and work hope that this is going to turn out fine. And she, she lives in a state that has been very aggressive about doing the right thing. So, um, so it, it, that, that's good. It's, it's incredibly worrying, of course, still, of course. It, and still, it, yes. Um, it's the, the thing that frustrates me the most about this is how quickly universities have jumped into the 2008 mindset, like, job free hiring freezes and uh suspending people's jobs and like firing adjuncts and like they're, they're, they're jumping into this before like we're even sure like that's the right or the reasonable thing to do and it's just i i didn't end up going for my history phd because of what was happening then and i didn't i still will not go into history because the humanities is um sadly tragically unfortunately falling falling apart and eating itself alive and mm-hmm. it, it's heartbreaking to see as somebody who's ad- adjacent to it um but i, I the reason i end up going to library science because there, there are jobs there and, and it's not going to be forever because a lot of things that are happening in library sciences are starting to happen in libraries in archives um so i myself is focused specifically on digital humanities aspect of libraries and I focus on really technical aspects of it because I, I'm afraid of this horror of the um of, of not being able to get a job of, of the identification academic life across the board um and it's happening less in the sciences and it, it will come for them too but mm-hmm. hopefully not before I, I, I do think unionization is the only option uh, if they're going to, if, if universities are going to jump into neoliberalism and treat us like exchangeable parts, then the only result is to unionize and push back. Yeah, I agree with that. I really do think that unions are the way to go moving forward. I, I do think that there are some issues that have to be resolved in that because unionizing efforts between grad students and adjuncts and these various polities on campus that have different needs and you need them all in the same union to have the numbers to collectively bargain with any string but Mm -hmm. because of the different needs it makes it very easy for the administration to to kind of sit there and wait it out because you if you have are relying on a very large transient master student population who's probably going to be gone in two years if you can sit on the install negotiation for nine months well you know that you have effectively weakened the union already because a lot of those students are are going to be so close to moving out depending on when the negotiation started um and there are going to be people who will uh, balk 
for unknown reasons about, oh, well, we can't give, well, not for unknown reasons, for, for some reasons that are legitimate and others that are not, that are ideological, that will go, well, we can't be giving master's students the same benefits that we're giving adjuncts. Right. And I, I say, I also don't think it's just up to grad students. And I, I'd say you probably agree with this. I think it's up to tenured faculty and yes. a, a non-tenured faculty and tenured track faculty to unionize yes. and to, to join. And you're right. There's a lot of different thing, different motivations and impulses to, to joining a graduate student union. But it needs to be deeply rooted within academic life because for far too long, it's just been slowly eating away and slowly eating away. And there is always going to be mm -hmm. loss of academia. Well, and, you know, and it's the, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I, I get the concerns about the job and I have some of the same ones. Mm -hmm. I, you know, in a perfect world, we wouldn't consider academia as necessarily like we do a trade school that has to prepare you for a job. Because I believe that it does, but, you mm -hmm. know, that also, and I know I'm being pie in the sky here, um, that mm -hmm. shouldn't be the primary reason that you're doing it, necessarily. It shouldn't be like trying to get your, um, into a trade union, which right. I'm all for trade unions, but, you know, I think that there is something to the uh, improvement of self that is the undercurrent of liberal arts education, making you a better citizen you know a more enlightened citizen and all that stuff and call me old-fashioned but i do believe in the, the value of that but i also mm -hmm. understand the realities especially as scoffs have skyrocketed skyrocketed i should say and they have turned academia into a business model instead of what mm -hmm. it used to be um so i and i'm afraid that that you know horses out of the barn and i don't know that we'll ever get it put back in there to reduce costs and everything hopefully we will but i think they the business model has suck its teeth too far into the beast to, to ever truly be dislodged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, that's a down note. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I completely agree. But I'm excited for you to start your, your PhD, and, and I look forward to seeing what you do with it. Um, Me I too, and I'm excited to not being in the States for five years, maybe. Yeah, that should be nice. Um, I have not yet been to Canada. I'm fairly close, but just have not made the trip over. I need to do that at some point. Again, once Kinda, the, yeah. the epidemic is over. If you ever make it over to Vancouver, let me know, and we can get some coffee sometime. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I certainly will. Well, I thank you for joining me today. I don't want to take up any more of your time, especially... If you're like me, you probably have a, a bunch of other. Oh no! Thank you, thank you for having this. I've, I've really enjoyed this, and uh, it's been a, it's been a great chat. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, I would like to have you back on at some point in the future, perhaps after you've settled into your PhD program, and you can come in and give us an update. Absolutely, we'd be happy to. You have a good day, Ben. You too. And before you go, um, uh -huh. please promote any uh, social media or website if you would like. Oh, sure. Uh, well, my website is B-R-I-M, as in Brian M, B-R-I-M, Watts, W-A-T-S, at dot com. Um, and that is also my Twitter handle and conveniently my email as well. Uh, and you can find me way too on Twitter all the time at Twitter. Uh, yeah, but I'm most, yes. And I also, um, I ran the Ask Historian podcast for a while. So if you want to go back and listen to the Ask Historian podcast, I've talked a lot about history and stuff like that. Um, and I'm always happy to um, talk to people who are interested in this field or adjacent to it and about when I've, um, if anybody's interested in talking about what it's like being a, 
a library student after being a historian. It's, 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 a, it's a fun thing to talk about. Yes, and I want to thank uh, on this episode, Laura Giebert, who directed me towards Brian. And so, all right, thank you. Thank you. And I will put all that in the um, show notes so that when it goes live, you can find the link so that you don't have to seriously scrabble those down. <laughs> thank you again, Brian, for being on. And thank you for listening to Evoking History.